Ladies and gentlemen, 400 days, 400 long days inside the arcane world of the Egyptian prison system, 400 days made longer by the uncertainty that hung over them. Was this day a moment nearer to freedom or no closer at all? Peter Grester was jailed for doing the job of journalism and doing the job of journalism when it was at its most fundamental, at its most critical, at a time of unrest and upheaval, at a time of violence and of war. Peter's book of that time and of his career is titled The First Casualty. It is not self-referential. He is not the first casualty. It is an allusion to the Aeschylus quote, truth is the first casualty of war. And the injury of that casualty is not just to the journalist jailed or silenced, but to the profession he or she represents and to the very foundation of any free and fair system of government. It is an injury to all of us. The silencing of one voice weakens the voices of all. It chills dissent, delegitimizes the vital practice of journalism and makes us all a little less free. Defending free speech requires defending the speech of those with whom you disagree. Peter Grester had 400 long days to ruminate on this topic as an unhappy and unwilling guest of the Egyptian government. Today, however, he is at liberty and he is with us on the land of the Ghana people whose elders I'd like to acknowledge now um, and whose custodianship of this land I'd like to pay tribute to. Professor Grester is an award-winning foreign correspondent who worked for Reuters, the BBC and Al Jazeera across the globe, including in London, Belgrade, Africa, South America and Afghanistan. He won a Peabody Award in 2011 for his reportage from Somalia. He is the author of The First Casualty and the UNESCO Chair of Journalism and Communications at the University of, uh, University of Queensland. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Peter Grester. Thank you. My God. <laughs> Thank you. This is fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd, I'd uh, wallow in that applause, but we've only got an hour. <laughs> Look, it's fantastic to be here. Um, I'm actually incredibly frustrated because I had to fly in this morning uh, from Perth where I've been working on a documentary and I've missed out on, on so much of the festival, but I'm incredibly jealous of everybody here. And thank you very much for coming and, and listening, to talk about, listening to me talk about really my pet subject. Um, it's not often that you get a stage to talk about the things that you really care about. Look, what I wanted to do today was really run through a little bit of the backstory. Um, and just remind you of what had happened, what we were doing in Egypt at the time. And more importantly, how I came to the conclusion um, that journalism was really under threat, how I came to really get that sort of fire in my belly that led me to write the book. Um, because in, in Egypt at the time, it was we were actually doing what I consider to be pretty mundane journalism. If I can take you back to 2011, the Arab Spring, we saw a revolution in Egypt, the very beginning of, of the Arab Spring, and we saw Hosni Mubarak toppled by a people's revolution. The Muslim Brotherhood was elected as a result of the elections that followed a year later, in the middle of 2012, the first democratically elected that Egypt had ever government that Egypt had ever had. 
They survived a year because like so many revolutionary movements, they were actually crap at running a country. Um, something we've seen quite a lot around the world, particularly in Africa. And I arrived at a period when there was a great deal of turmoil in Egypt. Um, my home base was Nairobi. And so I was called in to cover Egypt just over the Christmas New Year period between over 20, 2013 into 2014, just for a couple of weeks. I was the mug that didn't have anywhere to go for Christmas that year, and so that I got called in. And because I didn't know Egypt very well, I was doing what I'd consider to be vanilla journalism. Ben would know this very well. The government makes a statement, you pick up the phone, you call the opposition, and then you find an analyst to make sense of it all. Now, I've upset governments in the past. I've, I've expected some kind of blowback, but Egypt wasn't one of, those, one of those stories for me. I was sailing a very, very safe path because I didn't know the story. I didn't know where the boundaries lay. It just so happened that at the time, the opposition, the classic model of a democracy, the party that was last in power, was the Muslim Brotherhood. And of course, the government in Egypt had taken to declaring or accusing the Brotherhood of, of acts of terrorism, of being involved in acts of terrorism. It hadn't formally prescribed the Brotherhood as a terrorist organization, but it had begun to accuse them of terrorism. So when I picked up the telephone and called the Brotherhood, it seemed that somebody in government was upset. But I knew none of this. On the night of December 28th of 2013, I was in my hotel room listening to Triple J streaming down through my laptop dancing around, <laughs> as you do. And I was really looking forward to meeting a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for quite a few years and going out for dinner. And there was a knock on the door. It's a little bit odd. It's not something I usually anticipate. And the, the hotel, if they ever had messages, would call up. And then I was stuffing my shirt in. There was a much more aggressive knock. Okay, hang on a minute. I cracked open the door, and the door flung open as if, there were, if it was pushed by a spring. And the room was filled with about eight or ten guys. And I realized something was up fairly quickly. They were in plain clothes, there was, but there was a hotel security guard with them um, who made it very clear that this wasn't just a bunch of thugs that were rumbling the room. And I got hauled off and placed under arrest with my two colleagues, Muhammad Fami and Baha Muhammad. Now, I couldn't quite believe it when the charges were read out to me, when, the, when I was taken into the interrogator's um, office to, to be explained what it was that we were supposed to have done. I was accused of being a member of a terrorist organization, of aiding and abetting a terrorist organization, of financing a terrorist organization, of broadcasting false news to undermine national security. When you think about it, these charges were about as serious as you could possibly get, short of actually pulling the trigger on a Kalashnikov into a crowd. These charges, if the authorities followed them through, actually carried the death penalty. Now, the problem for me was trying to reconcile what I'd actually done, vanilla journalism on the one hand, and what we're accused of doing, acts of treason on the other. The gap was so wide that I, I, I struggled enormously to get a sense of what it was that we had done. 
How is it that somebody could possibly come to the conclusion that, that the work that we had done, the very ordinary work that we were doing, was somehow undermining the state, was somehow tantamount to terrorism? It was, it was incredibly confronting for me. I remember one day, there was a turning point, a moment when I started to rethink things a little bit. Um, in the basement of the National Intelligence Directorate, where, where um, supposed or accused terrorists are, are questioned, there's literally a dungeon. It's a holding cell down in the basement of the building, and each day a paddy wagon goes around to all of the prisons in, in the Torah complex, which is, a, in effect, a collection of, of distinct prisons. And they bring in the prisoners, they throw you in the dungeon, and you wait down there until your interrogator is ready to see you. And I remember I was waiting down there one day and the cage was rattled and this bloke yells out, Mr. Peter, Peter, you come, you come. So I came, put my hands through, they put me, they cuffed me. And this guy's leading me up from, for questioning. And he turns around to me, but he says in broken English, so where, where are you from? And I say, oh, mate, I'm from Australia. And he says, oh, Australia, welcome in Egypt. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> really looking forward to seeing the pyramids someday. <laughs> But here's the thing. I tell this story because what it did was made me start to think a little bit more seriously about, about me. I, I realized this guy wasn't, didn't consider me to be a threat. Now, he wasn't being sarcastic. It was a genuine response. He was just being Egyptian. He didn't see me as a threat. And if he didn't see me as a threat, I started to think that maybe the state didn't see me as a threat individually that I wasn't under arrest because of what I had done, but because of what we'd come to represent. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that actually this was the thing that was underpinning it. Now, of course, a lot of people have said, look, you're Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera is financed by the Qataris, and the Qataris have an issue with Egypt. Egypt has an issue with Qatar, and that's what was, that was what was underpinning it. And maybe that's true to a certain extent, but if you wanted to make a point about Qatari malfeasance in Egypt, why would you arrest an Australian and two Egyptians? Made no sense. If you wanted to make a point about Al Jazeera's supposed work in the region to undermine the Egyptian authorities, again, why come after an Australian who'd only been in the country for two weeks who had absolutely no contact of any significance with the Muslim Brotherhood? Yes, we'd made phone calls, but I had plenty of colleagues who had much deeper contacts, who had the kind of relationship that you could have built a case against. But in fact, the point is that this wasn't about me. It was an attack on press freedom. And when I started to see it that way, that's when I realized that we had no choice but to frame it that way, to try and present this, to make, it, make the rest of the world understand that this wasn't just about us. This was an attack on the institution of press freedom and therefore on everybody that depended on a free press and a, to, to, to live in a functioning democracy. Now, of course, the thing that prison does is it gives you time to think. There was one guy I remember who said to me when he sort of misunderstood, I said, my God, there's just so much time in here. The thing that gets, that's what gets into your head. And he said, yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> he, said, he pointed out, he said, this is what monks and sages crave. <laughs> Space in a quiet cell with no interruptions, the ultimate digital detox. <laughs> um, 
But I realized the more I th thought, the more I realized that, hang on a minute, in, in throughout my career, I've tracked really what has become the war on journalism. The turning point for me was 9-11. I was in Afghanistan in 1995 as a correspondent, and we would cross the front lines routinely. The party that was on the other side, the opposition, the group that was laying siege to Kabul was the Taliban. Now, it seems incomprehensible today, but the Taliban accepted us as legitimate players on the battlefield, as observers. Inconvenient sometimes, yes, but they didn't target us. We weren't under attack. It was, we were seen as observers, not participants. And governments, too, were happy for us to be there because they welcomed any understanding of what the Taliban meant, what was driving them. Well, let's go forward to, 19, to 2001 when I went back as part of the BBC team covering Afghanistan then. And all of a sudden, the Americans were dropping bombs on Al Jazeera's bureau in Kabul and the Taliban were taking their heads off and murdering journalists, not because of stories that they were reporting, but simply because they were journalists. And here's the thing. In the wars of the past, wars over tangible things like land or ethnicity or water, journalists are observers. Pains in the ass, yes. Inconvenient, yes. Often caught up in the fighting, as, as so often happens when you've got a group of people in a place where bits of lead are flying around at supersonic speeds. But not specifically targets simply because of who they are. But what 9-11 has done is taken, is, is created a war over ideas. And in that conflict over ideas, the place where ideas are transmitted becomes a part of the battlefield. And this isn't an abstract concept. What happened to us in Egypt was a very real example of that. What the government was doing was taking this conflict of ideas, the war on terror, and redefining it so broadly as to include anybody that was doing legitimate journalism, including speaking to the opposition. And what we've seen since 9-11, all the way through, it's not just in places like Turkey or Afghanistan, but even in more established democracies like, guess what, here in Australia. And this is what concerns me. We seem to have been losing sight of the really important role that good journalism plays. I think I'm going to look at that because we need to have a, have a chat, but that's really how I got to the point, as I said, of, of, of trying to understand what was going on. And that's also why I felt that I needed to put all of this down and write the book. Ben. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Gresta. This idea of the war on terror, and, and someone says to you in the book, the war on terror is a war on an abstract noun, and... Uh, that can then be redefined to be anything at all and governments have chosen to redefine it to, to be anything that might be politically inconvenient for that. Can you, uh, can you talk in a little more detail just about the way the practice of journalism had to change? I mean, we, we spoke a little bit earlier about if you, you know, the, the, the sort of classic image of the foreign correspondent in the body armour has got press, you know, emblazoned across their chest sort of thing. Once upon a time that was a measure of protection, but now that makes you a target. Yeah, a very, very specific target. Look, it, it's, it's to a certain extent, and, and let's go back to what happened in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, I actually felt in 1995, I felt that 
the safest thing for us to do, as perverse as it sounds, the safest thing for us to do was to cross the front lines. Because I recognize that if you're working in a place like Afghanistan, at some point, someone on the other side is going to find you in their rifle sights. And what you don't want, to, to, what you don't want is for them to see you as the enemy. And so what I had to do as journalists was to cross the front line to make sure that we spoke to both sides, that we asserted that independence, so that both sides would recognize that even if they disagreed with some of the reporting that we were doing, they disagreed with perhaps the views that we were presenting from their enemies, they recognized that we were still giving them an opportunity to speak, that we were still interrogating them and still interviewing, we were still interested in, in what they had to say. And so, perversely to me, that was a form of security, that was a form of insurance. Now you can't do that. You try and cross that line, as we found in Egypt, and you become seen as someone who is promoting terrorist ideology. And guess what? Even in Australia, under the foreign fighters legislation, that is now a crime. And, and the problem is that the idea of a journalist as an independent observer who has not just the right, but the, res the professional responsibility to interrogate all parties to a conflict is now being eroded by this obsession with national security. It, it somehow we've lost, we, we, we're so insecure that we seem to be thinking that if we expose ourselves to, to, to the logic of, of the Islamic extremists, we're somehow making ourselves more vulnerable. And I don't understand that. I think you mentioned in the book that sometimes when you're in Kabul and, and the Taliban are on the outskirts, you would cross the lines, even if you didn't have a story to talk about, you'd just go for the, you know, the Afghan three cups of tea sort of thing, just to be seen to be independent and on, and on both sides. If you were to do that now with the, with the Foreign Fighters Act, you came back with an Australian passport, what would be the result? You'd find yourself in fairly short order, I think, under arrest. Um, I, I mean, we, I don't know if it's been tested, but the legislation is there, and at some point if the legislation is there, it's going to get used. Does the legislation have another aspect, though, in that just the simple fact of its existence um, has a chilling effect and means yeah. that when, when, when you walk to that line, you say, well, look, I'm not going to go across it. I'm not going to talk to that side because of the possible ramifications. And this is something that's been... It, it's, it's an unquantifiable thing, and this is one of the problems when it comes to drafting this legislation, this kind of legislation. And, and, and here's the thing. I think what we've done... For, for a start, we, we never really know how many stories are not reported because of this kind of legislation. That's an unknowable thing. It's an indefinable thing, and we're never going to be able to stand up and hold up a, a file for the government and say, look what you've missed out on because of this stuff. But national security has become such a, an easy watchword, an easy catchphrase for the government, and, and both parties, both of the major, both the coalition and Labor, are so keen to be seen as being strong on national security that there is no serious debate, no serious pushback on, on, on the legislation. Um, and so I think we need to be very careful about what it is that we're losing when we see these pieces of legislation introduced. Now, let me be absolutely clear, lest anybody misquote me here. I recognise the risks that terrorism poses to us. I, I've probably more than most people been 
seen the consequences of terrorism. I've been caught in, in, in car bombs, thankfully not injured, but very, come very close to it. One of my close personal friends and colleagues, Kate Payton, was shot and murdered in Mogadishu while we were working together by terrorists. So I understand. But what concerns me is that in our rush to protect our way of life, our Australian values, whatever that means, we're actually undercutting one of the most fundamental elements of the way that that system has worked, and that is a free, vibrant press. Now, it's not always pretty. It's not always particularly edifying, but it has worked. And that's what, that's what I'm worried about. I, th I think we're, we're in danger of losing that. Are we, are we also in danger of dealing with another very nebulous term? As you say, the war on terror can mean whatever you want it to mean. National security is this incredibly broad umbrella that can, you can pull absolutely anything into that. And, and as a result of that, you know, FOIs come back blank. Um, uh, governments refuse to comment on, on, on public monies and public policies being spent. You know, national security can mean whatever you want it to mean. Yeah, and we've seen national security broadened to the point that the, det the offshore detention centres were included, and you know this by, through your own work very, very well. Manus and Nauru, I mean, the government insisted that under the Border Force Act... They two, two years jail for, for speaking out about what, about what, what you see being done in, in, in Nauru and Manus. This is, this is a piece of legislation still on the books. And, and who here can see a debate or discussion around Manus and Nauru as a, as, a, as a violation, as a threat to national security. Hands up. Anybody? Anyone? Really? <laughs> well, clearly a lot of people in government think that it is because that law exists. Now, whatever you think of those policies, you cannot realistically, honestly put your hand on your heart and say that if we discuss what's taking place in Manus and Nauru, you're threatening national security. If you as a civil servant leaks to the press information about the conditions on Manus and Nauru, that somehow you're violating national security. We need to have a robust debate about immigration, make no mistake, but not to silence that debate because of national security. Now, it's not just Australia, by the way, that's doing this. Um, I have enormous respect for President Obama I met the guy. Um, he was one of our strongest advocates while we were in prison. He picked up the phone and he spoke to President Sisi personally. But guess what? The US has the Espionage Act that was introduced in 1918 to do what it says on the tin, to deal with spies, foreign spies. From 1918 until 2008, the Espionage Act was used a total of five times. Five times in all of the, almost 100 years. In 90 years, it was used five times. Barack Obama used the Espionage Act more than twice as often as all his predecessors combined. Now, again, you could understand that if he was prosecuting genuine spies, if, if somehow there was a, a huge spy ring. But it wasn't. In almost every case, it was going after journalists or their sources. And they weren't exposing national secrets. They were almost invariably exposing stories that were politically embarrassing. Let's talk about some other forms, I suppose, of the, the delegitimisation of journalism. Your instance was a particularly egregious case. But, uh, but things like, um, and, and it, was, it was one of the instances, one of the charges against you, I think you have a conversation in a book where um, someone says to you, oh, you didn't have a, a permit to be a journalist in Egypt. You said, I don't think I'm in jail because I didn't have, I hadn't filled out a form. 
Um, but, but the denying of visas to journalists, we see that on Nauru. It's difficult to, for journalists to get to, to Manus Island. In Kiribati, there was a, a ferry disaster and foreign journalists weren't, weren't allowed to cover that. Um, all around the world, journalists are being sort of kept out of these things. Um, we have, uh, you know, open attacks on journalists. You know, uh, we, have, we have President Trump, you know, criticising the failing New York Times and, and deploring fake news and those things. How corrosive is uh, those sort of attitudes and that sort of language and those sort of actions on the practice of journalism and in, in terms of sort of delegitimising it, making it seem almost an unethical profession? You know, we've all... A couple of things have happened, obviously. There is my, my fundamental thesis, which is the way that journalism has, become under, has come under attack in the war on terror. But there is also the enormous pressure that's come as a result of the digital revolution. There's a business pressures that's made it that much harder for us to work, but also what it's done is that it's... Journalism has lost its capacity to, to... or its role in political debate because of social media, because it's allowed politicians, and perfectly understandably and legitimately, to talk directly to, to, to the electorate. You don't need to go through the journalists. You don't need to have that mediated. And I, you know, I fully endorse that. But it's also meant that governments can, can as you say, delegitimise the work that journalists do dismiss the role of journalists. Um, the fact that we have so many sources s means that there is an illusion of, of, in, of, of being well informed. But a number that the volume of, of information is not the same as the quality of information. And it's by, by undercutting the, the, the respect and the role that journalists play in a democracy, we undervalue the role and the importance of good journalism in a functioning democracy. Now, again, I understand that we, as journalists, have a responsibility. We're partly to blame here because in our rush, particularly in our rush to try and keep eyeballs on, some journalism has become quite sloppy. But let's go back to the the most fundamental elements of, of the system that's actually stood us in pretty good stead for the last 200 years. And that is that, you, that we hire those politicians. We hire them when we vote for them. We pay their wages. We, pay their, we are the bosses. We employ them. And as their employers, we have a responsibility to know and be informed about what they're doing in our names. And the means by which that is done is through the media. Now, of course, there is a value in direct communications, but you cannot have a strong democracy unless you have strong journalism, period. And the, the, most, the most patriotic thing that journalists can do is to constantly question and challenge those in authority. I've taken on a role now as an academic as Ben mentioned in the very beginning, in the introduction, I'm now a professor of journalism at the University of Queensland. And I've been struck by the parallels between journalism and academia. We work to... The, 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 they're different worlds. They deal, but we both deal with information. We both deal with facts. But here's the, the fundamental parallel, too, that, that science in particular depends on having researchers constantly question the thesis, the underlying theses. And the more you question and challenge it, the more those theses stand up to, to, to questioning and challenging, the stronger those theses become. And the same is true of our, of, our, of our system of government. The more that we question and challenge and hold 
a sceptical torch to the government, the better the policies that we're going to get out in return. But if we end up constantly delegitimizing legitimate journalism, constantly undercutting and undermining that role, then we are all poorer for it and the system becomes weaker fundamentally. We've talked thus far about the media as though it is this sort of monolithic entity that thinks the same and, 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 and behaves in the same way. We know that it's, it's not. Like any profession, there is good journalism and bad journalism. Um, uh, what do you see the media has not done well? Where has it sort of failed itself and weakened its own cause? We've lost our capacity to... We've lost the, both the resources and, I think, the appetite for, frankly, what's pretty unpopular journalism, and that's the really good investigations. Um, again, remember, in, in the digital world, the thing that earns you money, the thing that keeps you alive as a journalist is, is eyeballs. And so, and we're, again, Ben, as, as, a, as a newspaper journalist, you would understand this too, that our stories are measured on the number of clicks that you get and the, the amount of time that people spend on those stories. And the more time they spend, the more valuable your work becomes, and therefore that kind of thing is encouraged. Which, let's face it, means that we're, there's a tendency, there is a pressure towards McDonald's journalism. Now, we all know what happens if all you ever eat is McDonald's. But the pressure on the media is to produce McDonald's because that's what brings in the punters. At some point, you've got to eat your spinach, but <laughs> no one likes, you know, you don't want to produce only spinach because that's not good for the bottom line. Um, and so the two areas, really, that are both expensive and, frankly, not particularly popular is really good investigative political journalism, um, but also foreign news. And that's, that also, that stings me because I've spent most of my professional life with that. Um, and, yes, there is a tendency to put, and there's also a, a consequent um, degrading of, of, of cross-checking of accuracy because, again, the, the pressure is to get stuff out fast. Uh, Does this become a sort of self-fulfilling problem? I mean, uh, the way you've described it, journalism is under attack politically but also economically. And those two things, it seems, are linked, that one feeds into the, to, to the other. A, a, a desire to cost-cut means fewer sub-editors, means um, errors get through, which means people can, can sort of write, oh, it's poorly researched, it's not a good piece of journalism, that drive for clickbait. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's where we get into this downward spiral. And, and something in this system, by the way, has to change. But I think, if I'm going to get on my soapbox again, what we've fundamentally got to do is have a conversation about the role that we want the media to play. You know, I, I, nobody here, I, I'm, I'm not particularly satisfied with the way it works. I'm not particularly satisfied with the, with the system as it's evolved. But we've got ourselves into this situation because very clever engineers have created this kind of digital world. And I don't think it's been through any conspiracy. It's just evolved in this way. But what we need to do is recognise the role that we need journalism to play. And when we understand that, if we can all agree that we need strong journalism, then we can start talking about how we engineer the system, re-engineer it, to get us to that point where we can finance journalism in a way that gives us the resources to be politically or to be independent of political and business interests, 
um, and to produce stuff that might not necessarily be immediately popular but is necessary to, to the way that we, we, we work. And then we, can get, then we can start to produce something, I think, get a system that's actually working for us. Is journalism a little bit responsible for that as well? Sometimes you hear in newsrooms people talk about, you know, there's almost this commodification of news. Um, you talk about people are content creators um, and the news that you consume. It's, it, and the way we've discussed journalism is a very sort of traditional fourth estate role. Um, you know, that, that watchdog that, that on, on, on governments and, and, and institutions of power. Has, has journalism, is journalism at risk of being sort of commodified and, and people forgetting that, that vital democratic function that it plays? Yeah, it is being commodified. I mean, again, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing in the sense that we've got to evolve into something, into some kind of new, new system. We've got to create, we've got to figure out a way of, of making journalism pay or at least financing journalism. Remember, the old system was was deeply imperfect, but there was, as any any journalist who worked in the pre-digital era will know, there was a great wall of China between the advertising side of the business and the editorial side of the business. And even though occasionally there'd be someone who wanted you to do a junket, it was still generally understood that advertising was independent of editorial. And now the two are so closely linked that we can't escape that. And we need to somehow try and redesign the system to, to, to be more effective and to be more independent. I've got some ideas, but I still think, and there's some really good research on going on about this, but I still think we're not going to get to that point unless we all, as, as, a, as a community, as a society, recognise the need to protect journalism from, in, from political or business interests. We recognise the, re the need for good journalism to play in our democracy. And then we can start to say, okay, where do we need to go with this? In about five minutes, I'm going to open up the floor to questions, but uh, ju just uh, a couple more, Peter. Um, uh, you talked about you've got some ideas about the way where journalism might go. Has anyone, has any new news organisation you've seen around the world sort of cracked the code? Has anyone worked it out? Um, there are a few people that claim to have um, That's a different thing. That, which, is, which is a different thing. Um, you know, the New York Times is supposed to be turning, just turning a profit at the moment. Um, I know the Guardian is struggling. <laughs> um, That's the history of the Guardian, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it's still alive, but it is. But the thing is that that business model, the Guardian has, I don't know if you'd go, how many of you know, but it's, it's financed through voluntary contributions well, and, and and we have the trust it, it is trust, yeah, yeah. It, it is it, it, it is a different model and we are we are approaching you know to, to defend we are approaching sort of break even this year but 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 historically that has always been and particularly in this digital age um, newspapers you know we've, we've seen the independent in London um, not 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 printing a daily paper anymore you know there is enormous pressure on on the you know the the legacy media brands and there are those such as BuzzFeed which is claiming to be able to, to do it. But if you look at the buzzfeeds of the world, um, the Washington Post, they're all financed by other, other sources of revenue. Even The Guardian has to have a trust which underpins it, underwrites it. The, 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 the thing that isn't paying for itself is the journalism. It works as long as there's some other external source of funds whether it's a wealthy benefactor who likes the idea of having a masthead in the way that Rupert Murdoch does, he keeps 
paying, keeps on supporting the Australian, the um, um, the Sun in the UK, the, the the Times because more because of his ego, I think, than because they're, they're profitable and because they're lost leaders for the rest of his empire. The other organisations like the ABC, like um, Al Jazeera, which are financed by governments. In almost every case, it's because the money is coming from somewhere else, not not from the media. So I, I don't know really of anybody that's really quite cracked it. There are a few that are starting to figure out how to build a, a relationship with their audiences in a way that does finance it. But again, it's a very niche. They, they tend to be quite niche publications. I'll ask one more question. You're here with us. Um, you're healthy now and 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 at liberty, as as we can see. But that's not necessarily the case. Can, can you tell us how, um, what happened to you in Egypt those, those, those years ago sort of still looms over your head now? Well, the problem is I'm still a convicted terrorist. I still have an outstanding prison sentence in Egypt to serve, which has a couple of rather awkward complications. Um, Interpol won't arrest me because they recognise our case is politically motivated, so that's, we're safe from that. But any country that has an extradition treaty with Egypt is technically a problem. And guess what? The whole of sub-Saharan Africa has one extradition treaty. So if I go back there, there's a, it's a little bit iffy. It, it's difficult. I think a lot of those sub-Saharan African countries wouldn't necessarily want the headaches of arresting me and sending me back to Egypt. But I can also see if I do my job and get up the government's nose that they would, someone at some point would pull out this piece of paper and say, look, what we've got here... It's a treaty, it's got nothing to do with us, this is between you and the Egyptian authorities, terribly sorry, but we've got to do this. But there's another problem. Hands up here, who's tried to get into the United States with a terrorism conviction? <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy, <laughs> I promise you. And there are a few countries where you have to declare your criminal record on your visa applications. And there's no way of getting around it. I have, to, I have to acknowledge that I have a terrorism conviction. And although most countries still don't recognise that, if you're a little flunky sitting in Homeland Security and you get this application from a guy who was convicted on terrorism charges in Egypt, well, of course, you know what you're going to do. So I have to go through all sorts of hoops. I have a letter from the Secretary of State on my file at the moment to get me through, but I haven't tried to get into the States in Trump's America, so that might well be a bit of a headache. Can I ask you to put your, just my final question, and I, and I, I will go to the, the audience, but while I've got you, can I ask you to put your professor of journalism hat on and stroke your beard and smoke your pipe and, and, and those things? Um, a couple of stories recently um, have sort of got Australian journalism sort of you know, looking inward and sort of tearing itself apart. Um, was Barney Joyce a story? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he was a story. Look, from the... He, well, maybe he was an idiot. I, I'm not going to get into that discussion. But he is a politician that actively campaigned during the same-sex marriage debate on family values. Now, if you're going to enter that debate, I'm sorry, but you do open yourself up to comment and criticism and to reporting on your own family life. You know... Whatever you think of his, his, his approach, whatever you think of what he's done, the fact is that as a politician, particularly if you start 
making those sorts of statements, if you start making judgments about what other people do in their private lives, then you've got to be prepared to accept some, some heat. I'll go to one more of those, the cabinet files. Would you have given the cabinet back? <laughs> oh, I wish I'd known. I wish I'd had that. <laughs> you no, sold it to me. It's mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I can't quite understand why the ABC gave that back. Yeah. I will go to the audience. Have we got any questions out there? Have we got some mics running around? Yes, we do. Here we go. Um, and just the, the usual precursor to these, um, we are looking for genuine questions rather than the, uh, the dissertation dressed as a question. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Peter. Um, you mentioned the Foreign Fighters Act and uh, given that um, one of the effective groups uh, fighting against Daesh in Syria, uh, the YPG, the, the Kurds, um, and quite a few Australians have gone over and fought against Daesh with the Kurds, what do you see as the future for them returning to Australia and the future of journalists who interview them? Um, I'm not going to really... I don't want to get into the question of those fighters and what happens to them when they get back. I, 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 but I, I fundamentally... The thing is that no one is going to get in trouble by interviewing a YPG fighter because they're seen as on our side. And this really exposes, frankly, the problems or the, the, the question, the, the, the underlying intent of the law. Um, there was talk at one point of, of detaining um, of detaining young of kids without charge, for as young as ten, I think it was, um, under the terrorism legislation. Um, and the government said, look, there's nothing in here that says that this is for anybody in particular. It's just that if, you, if, you, if somebody believes that you're a threat to, to national security, then we can, we can arrest you. There's nothing that says Muslim or Islam in there. But how many people think that someone called John is going to wind up under arrest? The fact is that you can't, we can't conceive of that. And that sort of thing exposes to my mind what really the kind of fundamentally biased intent of that kind of law. I'm, I'm going to hesitate to call it racist, but I really think that's what it is. Um, essentially, what your question goes back to the arguments around freedom of speech. You cannot limit freedom of speech. You just can't. Um, if we... If we stop ourselves from having these kinds of debates, then you're never really going to be able to have a robust functioning democracy where we work these issues out. You've got to be prepared. As Ben said in his opening remarks, freedom of speech means defending the speech of, of, of defending things that you don't like to hear, that are uncomfortable, that are unpleasant. That's, again, that's, that's the price that we pay for living in a pluralist society. And whether we like it or not, that's what we are. We are a pluralist society. I get really upset when politicians talk about Australian values as if there is such a thing that we all agree on, that every single person in this, in this tent can accept constitutes Australian values. I'd wager that if we gave a piece of paper to everybody and asked you to write down your, your, your Australian values, we'd end up with 150 different, different versions of it. Um, 
And so we've got to be prepared to have those conversations and make sure that, and, and listen to the YPG fighters as much as the Islamists to understand what's going on, understand what drives them, have the conversations, argue about why that's fundamentally wrong, and if we genuinely believe in the strength of our convictions and the, and the righteousness of our convictions, then have that, that win. You say you can't curtail free speech. Is, is 18C then undemocratic or is 18D I, sufficient protection? I, no, I, don't, I think 18C is, is, is bad. Um, and that's not to suggest that I'm condoning racist speech. Remember, Section 18C of, of the Race Discrimination Act uh, makes it a criminal offence to abuse anybody for, for, um, on the grounds of their race. I think that, as, again, as participants, as members of a democracy, you've got a responsibility to call it out when you see it, but we need to prescribe that socially, not, not legally. You've talked about the war on ideas and how journalism is seen as part of that battlefield now and so is under attack. Academia is also a place where ideas are exchanged. Do you see academia as also part of that battlefield and under attack? I do, but not to the same extent because it tends to happen in, in fairly closed ivory towers. But, you know, as a member, of, as, as a newly minted member of academia, I can see similar, similar debates taking place. Um, Again, it's not the, the principles of academic independence. I'm very pleased to be part of the University of Queensland, which very rigorously defends that and, and actually pushes back against some of the restrictions around, or the, the, the politically correct restrictions around academic discourse. Um, but I, I, I think that, as I said, while I think it's not to the, under the same pressure as, as the media, I, I, I do see it. I do see examples of it. In some institutions, it tends to be more egregious than others, but, but I don't think it's immune. Um, I can't agree more that investigative journalism is something that this country needs a lot more of. But to what extent aside from the business model of publications, to what extent is the Australian's lack of right to know about most of what it, its government is doing partly to blame for that? And nobody says anything about that. Um, when, I was a, when I was an investigative journalist in the United States 30 years ago, I could go into the Texas Department of Water Resources and ask for the name of every single toxic waste dump in the state, and they were obliged to give it to me. They are not obliged to give it to me in South Australia or any other state that I know of. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, that we've... The, 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 the ability, and again, ben, ben could probably speak to this more more than I, I could mean, at this point. The, the, the obvious example is, is the freedom of information uh, laws that, that are supposed to allow us the information. I mean, I, I do a lot of 
FOIs in the area of immigration, and everything comes back blanked out. Um, you, you can't know this because it will be embarrassing to Australia, it will affect international relations, commercial in confidence. Um, we don't like you very much, we're not going to tell you, it's not a real reason, but that's essentially what it is. There is, it is, it is a broken system, um, and this is, this is, this is, as you say, this is our government that we're paying for and that, that, that we elect and that we have a right to know what's being done in our name and with our money, but we are told very, very little in this country. No, no, please, I'm glad you answered it far better than I could have. Hi. Um, how do you see the balance between uh, the public media in Australia, like ABC, SBS, and the relationship with uh, investigative journalism and independent journalism, and how that um, works out in favour of uh, us as citizens and finding the truth? Is it a healthy balance? Do you think they push enough for us to feel that we get the right journalism? Um, you, you, you're suggesting, you're asking whether the ABC is sufficiently aggressive against the government. Yeah, look, I think the ABC is in a really awkward position. Um, let's go back to what we keep, what I've been saying repeating, and forgive me if I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but the role of the, the media, responsible media, is always to be sceptical and, and to question and challenge those in, in power. So when the Australian, is, sorry, when the ABC is, is criticised for being overly aggressive towards the government, I think that's a completely spurious argument. Um, I get quite upset, particularly with the Australian, for not being aggressive enough because they seem to be even if politically they tend to be more aligned with the government, they still have a professional responsibility to question and challenge what the government does. But the ABC is still vulnerable because, of, because the finances come straight from the Treasurer. And that's why I actually like the BBC model. The British brought the BBC is... Um, I don't know how many people know and understand the BBC model for financing. Um, hands up those who do. Okay, almost nobody. It's <laughs> they basically are paid for by the license fee. Everybody who owns a television in the UK pays for uh, pays a license to to the BBC. The license for that that TV and that money goes to the BBC. So it's money that is independent of government. It's taken directly from the license payers and it goes directly to the BBC. And everybody knows when they sign their license fee check, that's what the money goes for. Now that's under enormous pressure at the moment because. Very few people, or fewer and fewer people, are watching TV through their license, through, watching the media through their TVs any longer. It's mostly laptops, phones, and so on. And so it's hard to justify. But the fundamental principle of having a source of money that pays for the BBC, that's independent of government and independent of commercial interests, still holds. And I think that's valuable and it's a model worth trying to think about. But it also protects the BBC because. The government of the day can't get their hands on it. They can't shut down the BBC's... They can't choke off the BBC's funding in the way that they can here. And I think we need to try and re-engineer the way the, B the ABC is funded to, to get to that kind of independence. It's a really difficult position. I don't think... I think the ABC is underappreciated. I also think it's under-supported and under-funded. There is enormous room for improvement. I'm not suggesting, thank you, I'm not suggesting it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But let's try and imagine an Australia without the ABC, without programs like Four Corners, 
Again, hands up those of you who watch Four Corners. Yeah, exactly. It matters to us, you know. It really does. And if we can't afford to pay for programs like Four Corners, then all of us will be poorer for it. So I think we, we need to understand and appreciate the best that it does and, and have, again, a public debate and public support at that. Not necessarily about cutting the ABC off at the knees, but actually strengthening its journalism, strengthening its independence, strengthening its capacity to, again, to keep us properly informed. Because, frankly, I, don't, I can't see the commercials doing the, the job in the way that they used to any longer. We've got time for two more questions. Your parents, and particularly your brother, ran a long campaign for your release. Has your relationship with them changed since you've come home? <laughs> Sorry, where are you? I can't see you. Oh, right at the very back there. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, gosh, yes. Um, I, listen, I, I'm under no illusions. Um, everybody is here because, well, I, I know my, my story is, 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 you know, is interesting and stuff, but let's face it, you all fell in love with my mum and dad, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get that. And, and if, if, if... Are they here? Are they here? <laughs> they aren't here. My uncle is here up the back. Um, well, thank you. Um, and, and let's face it, if, if, if uh, Womad invited my family, my parents to be here, they'd have to book out the main stage, wouldn't they? <laughs> um, they were incredible. I, I, I am here because people felt that my parents, my family's pain, and, and I, owe them, I owe them my freedom. I really do. There are a whole host of reasons why... The Egyptians finally let us out, and we never really put our fingers on any one element, one factor. But I think the most important element of that was my my family, my parents, and of course, you know, you go through something like that, it can't help but change your relationship and bring you closer together. I'm wondering if you're aware of the plight of the Australian documentary maker, James Rickardson, who's been imprisoned in Cambodia since June, July last year. Yeah, I've spoken about James. Um, I've been on air. I've tweeted about him. Um, I think his case is, is, is terrible. I think we need to speak a lot more forcefully about, about James. I've been in touch with his family, and we've been trying to support his family as much as we can. Um, to, for those of you who don't know, James Rickardson is a documentary maker who is working in Cambodia. He was arrested last year while he was flying a drone over an opposition rally. Um, he's been charged with espionage, espionage charges. Um, we haven't seen the evidence yet. There's been quite a number of hearings about his case. Uh, and I think his case is very similar to ours in all sorts of respects. Um, and that we do need publicly a lot to, 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 to keep talking about his case, to encourage the government to get more actively involved. It's a complex, as always, these things are complex diplomatic games, and there's been quite some criticism of the government whether or not they've done enough. Um, I don't necessarily want to get involved in that, but I will say that publicly I think we need to be pushing, we need to be advocating. And let me say one more thing before we wrap up. Um, tweets actually matter. It's... It's, in, in our case, the Free AJ staff hashtag received three billion impressions, billion with a B. Now, each one of those is a tiny drop in the ocean, but collectively, those, those, those three billion impressions added up to an irresistible force 
that got me out. So the more that we tweet about it, it doesn't, it's not enough on its own. But equally, it's not nothing. And so keep talking about these cases. Keep talking about the James Rickardsons of the world. Keep talking about the journalists that are in prison. Because, again, let's go back to what Ben was saying at the very beginning. Whether you agree with the journalism or not, when a journalist is silenced, it attacks the press. And when the press is silenced, we are all poorer for it. Make no mistake. So please, if there's one thing I want you to leave today with, it's a fire in your belly to keep supporting press freedom and freedom of speech. Thanks. An important and a, a sober note to finish on, the, uh, the profession of journalism remains under attack. Um, but we are very happy uh, that our guest is here today. We are happy that he is with us. We are happy he is at liberty. And we are happy that his is a voice that will not be silenced. Ladies and gentlemen, can you thank again Peter Grester.